Now, how many of you have ever had somebody in your life who you looked up to greatly? Maybe it was a mentor, maybe it was a, a boss, maybe it was, uh, you know, someone that you looked up to greatly. Uh, but at some point they did something which completely shattered your view of, of them, your image of them. And it was completely disillusioning. It was very disappointing. You know, we've been studying the life of David here in the books of First and Second Samuel. And this week, we are going to continue a story which we, we looked at the first part of it last week. And this is probably the most well-known story in this book, but yet it is a very troubling story. And the reason it's so disturbing, the reason it's so troubling, is because in this story we have our hero, David. Remember who this guy is. This is the guy who the Bible refers to as the man after God's own heart. Our study, our series is called A Heart for God. And it's mostly looking at David and saying, how do we have a heart for God like he had? But yet here is this man, our hero, the man after God's own heart. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the man who taught us what it looks like to live for God passionately. And to worship passionately, the one who taught us how to have bold faith in a big God and live for him with an undivided heart, how to be people of integrity before the Lord. It is this man who we see doing unimaginable things, things that most of us would never even consider ever going there. Adultery and lies, even murder. And what's even more disturbing is that he did these things after he had spent years and years of his life sold out for God, living for God and worshiping God and doing the will of God and leading others to walk with God in the same way. And yet after years of that, he, he goes and does these things. Now that doesn't really fit into our mold, does it? It doesn't fit into our expectations of how stuff's supposed to work, right? I mean, I mean right, if somebody were to do things like that, you know, before they became a believer, well, then that might, we might be able to handle that. But, uh, but if somebody's already a believer, and then they fail greatly in these areas, well, that, that's just not how it's supposed to work, is it? You know, some people even wonder, why is this story even in the Bible? I mean, wouldn't it be better for us to just not know about this? I mean, why burst our bubble? Why show us the faults and the failures of this man who we look up to so much? Wouldn't it just be better to just show us what's praiseworthy about him so that we can model ourselves after that? And I believe, though, that there are some very good reasons why God wants us to know not only the heights which David soared at, but he wants us to know the depths that he sunk to. And one reason is this, because this story is meant to be a bold warning to us. It tells us, look, if this could happen to him, it could happen to you. Don't think it couldn't happen to you. Don't think that you're somehow above this or better than this. It could happen to you. David didn't just wake up one day and commit adultery and murder. No, this was a man who had a heart for God. This was a man who walked with God closely for years. And, and how did he get to this point? Well, it was a culmination of a lot of little things that got David to this point. And it, here's the deal, though. It was completely preventable. We need to know that part of the story. As we see, there was opportunity after opportunity for this situation to be abated, for things to be turned around, for it not to get to this point that it did. But what that required was humility and repentance. You know, it takes courage to own your actions. It takes courage to humble yourself and repent. But let me tell you this, it is worth it. 
It is so worth it. You know, the other reason why God wants us to know about this dark season in David's life is to give us hope. It's to give us hope. Because if God could love and forgive and use even a person like this, a person this flawed, a person who blew it this big, well then what about you? The title of today's message is The Big Cover-Up. So in our study last week, we looked at the first four verses of chapter 11, and we saw how David committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. She wasn't just any woman. She was the daughter of a friend of his. He was, she was the granddaughter of one of his counselors, and she was the wife of one of his mighty men. He was a trusted friend, and this was his wife, Bathsheba. Now David had put himself in a vulnerable situation. Right? Kind of like if you're an alcoholic and you're going to a keg party. That was David's deal. His weakness was in the area of women, and he decided, you know, I'm just going to let all the men go away, and I'm just going to hang back with the ladies. Right? Bad idea, David. You know, he put himself in a vulnerable situation where he was surrounded by temptation and completely lacking accountability. That's bad combination there. And when he was tempted, instead of taking the way of escape multiple times that God provided him, David entertained that temptation. And the temptation turned to lust, and lust turned to adultery. And last week we left off seeing this scene where after their night of illicit passion together, Bathsheba goes home. She just walks home. Can you imagine the emotions that are involved in a situation like this? The emotions which each of them were feeling. Well, first of all, we have to say that there was probably absolutely a deep sense of shame. David knew without a doubt that this was wrong. I mean, this was his friend's wife. He knew immediately that he had sinned, that this wasn't right. Bathsheba, how did she feel? I can't imagine that she felt anything except for used and violated, taken advantage of by a man who didn't actually love her, who had just called her over and used her physically and then sent her away. And I'm guessing that neither of them felt good about this. I mean, how could they? But I'll tell you the one positive thing they did feel, or at least they felt that it was positive. Here's the one thing they felt. They felt a sense of relief, didn't they? As Bathsheba goes home, there was this sense of, well, at least we didn't get caught. At least we didn't get caught. At least we got away with it, you know? And Uriah will never know, and no one ever has to find out about this. This is just going to be our little secret, right? Just between me and you. We never have to speak a word about this to anyone else ever. Just keep it between us. How many of you have ever lived with a secret in your life? How many of you have ever been, uh, had a skeleton in your closet? Something which you were living with and you didn't want people to find out. Let me tell you what, there's so many people who do. As a pastor, I have talked to so many people who have a secret, right? Something they did, something that was done to them, and it's a source of shame in their life. It's an unseen burden that they carry through life. I talked to someone a while back who told me how a secret she had been holding on to and trying to keep hidden had absolutely crippled her life, her entire life. Her secret caused her so much mental and emotional stress that 15 years of her life were just completely consumed by it. You know, if that's you here today, I want you to know that there is hope. I want you to know that there is a way for you to lay those burdens down. There's a way for you to be set free from that stuff. Jesus came to die for that thing, whatever it is in your life. And the message of the gospel has something to say about that secret that you carry around. You know, David and Bathsheba, they had a secret. 
but it was just their secret, right? It was just their own little secret. Nobody else had to know. That was the plan. Well, until something happened, which kind of threw a wrench in their plan, and we see that in verse 5. It says this, The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Oh, no, right? Oh, no. This, uh, this is not what they wanted to hear. This complicates things greatly. I mean, it was just going to be their little secret, but, but how do you hide a pregnancy? I mean, you can't really. I mean, it's just a matter of time before Bathsheba's going to start to show. That baby's not going to stay in there forever. This is an unwanted pregnancy as the result of this adulterous affair. But what are they going to do about this? Everybody's going to find out about their secret now. Everybody's going to find out that, you know, David, this man who's supposedly such a great man of God, he's a worship leader, he's the psalm writer, he's always talking about how important it is to get right with God and do things God's way. What are people going to say when they connect the dots, right? And they realize that Bathsheba's pregnant and her husband's been out of town for months. And, and then word gets around that, you know, she was a mysterious visitor to the king's palace just around the time that the baby would have been conceived. People can do the math, you know. They're going to figure it out. And if this comes out, well, then what will happen to David? Well, he'll lose the respect of the people. He'll look like a hypocrite. They might even try to overthrow him. And what about Bathsheba? Well, if, if she, even if she was coerced into this, even if she wasn't party to this, how are people going to treat her if they find out she's an adulteress? I mean, probably there are going to be some people, probably many people, who will say that this adulterous couple must be executed. Right? This would, this would be a scandal which would rock David's kingdom. And if they're not executed, Bathsheba's husband is surely going to divorce her, and she's going to be ostracized from society. She's going to end up on her own, raising this baby as a single mom. And if you think being a single mom is hard today, which it absolutely is, it was even harder in those days. So what options do they have, realistically? I mean, think about this. It's just a matter of weeks. The clock's ticking. Uh, she's, she'll be able to hide it for a while, but that baby's not going to stay inside. So they've really got two options here. Option one, right, is that they can, they can just come clean about it. They can take ownership for what they did. They can accept the repercussions. They can confess it. They can own up to what they did. Or if they play it right, they can come up with a plan, a really good plan. If they can come up with a really good plan, they can cover this up. And then their little secret can remain a secret. Now, we already know which one of those David's going to choose because that's part of my title, right? It's the cover-up, but he, he's going to attempt to cover this up. But my question is this, and this is what I want you to consider as we're talking about this. What about you? What are you going to do with those things in your life? What are you going to do with the secrets, with the sins? You know, you have the same choice that David had right here. You can come clean about those things. You can bring the, the things of the darkness. You can bring them into the light, or you can try and hide them. You can try and cover them up. You know, coming clean is absolutely scary. I have to tell you that it's scary because what happens if you come clean? What happens if people find out the truth? Well, then people will know what you did and it will be embarrassing and it will be humiliating maybe. It might even change the way that people look at you. You might lose their respect. You might lose relationships. People might say, I'm done with you. But if you confess and you repent, you know what else can happen? You can be forgiven. You can be restored. And then you can stop that train of destruction which you got rolling forward with your actions. You can stop it. But what happens if you cover it up? Well, well, maybe if you do it really well, 
If you can do it well, right? If you can play your cards well, no one will ever find out. And you'll get away with it. And what people don't know can't hurt them, right? That's, what, that's at least how the saying goes. No one will get hurt. Except, of course, that you'll know. And, uh, and God will know. And it will eat you alive. And I'll tell you what, it will haunt you. And you will be afraid all the time of this lingering fear that your secret will find you out. Friends, I'm here to tell you today as we look at this story, if you try to hide your sin, it will destroy you. No joke, it will destroy you. But if you confess your sin, I'm telling you that you will find freedom and you will find life and you will find forgiveness and joy. As for David, we know what David's going to do. He's going to try to do what people have been doing ever since the time of Adam. Hide their sin and try to cover it up. Let's check out what he does in verse 6. David sent word to Joab. Joab is the commander of the Israeli military. Send me Uriah the Hittite. That's Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. So here's the plan, right? David says, if only I could get Uriah to come to town, you know, and he could, uh, you know, we'll set a romantic setting for him and his wife, and then he'll spend the night with his wife, and boom, problem solved. No one will ever know about the one-night stand. We'll just say the baby came a few weeks early, right? I mean, everyone, including Uriah, will assume that the baby's Uriah's. I mean, why wouldn't they? And David and Bathsheba's affair remains their little secret forever. Problem solved. So Uriah, he's out on the front lines, right? And he's fighting in this battle. By the way, this is the same battle that David himself is supposed to be fighting in. This is what he should be occupied with. But he decided to sit this one out and hang back with the ladies, right? Bad move. But this messenger, he goes out to the place where the battle's taking place. And he finds Joab, the commander. And he gives him this message. He says, the king has requested the presence of Uriah in Jerusalem immediately. Now, think about how Joab would have received this news. Even Uriah, when they received this news. I mean, it would have been like, really? Right now? You're talking right now. We're like in the middle of a battle. We're fighting. This really isn't the best time. I mean, maybe this can wait until after the battle. And the messenger says, no, he needs to see Uriah right now. You know, and they're thinking, you know, we need all the help we can get. Uriah is one of the mighty men. He was probably... Uh, a leader of a battalion, right? So this is probably something Joab and, and Uriah were a bit confused by. Well, you know, what, what could it be that's so important that David can't send it to us in a message or send it through a messenger? Why does he need to see this guy in person in Jerusalem right away? What is so urgent? But those are the orders of the king, right? So what are you going to do? So Joab sends Uriah on his way, and they assume that this must be some pretty important business. Now check out what happens in verse 7. When Uriah came to him, David asked Joab, uh, asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. You know, it's kind of awkward to make small talk when you've got a, an agenda, isn't it? Here's Uriah, and, and he just got called up to Jerusalem, right? David needs to see him in person immediately. Something's very urgent. It can't wait. And so Uriah arrives, and there's all this expectation. So what is this big thing that David needs to talk to me about? And so David's, David's like, oh, hey, Uriah, so, uh, so how's it going? You know, how's, how's things? And he's like, yeah, so, so what's, the, what's the big urgent business that you need to see me about? I mean, this is, this is terribly awkward. Don't you see that? And he's like, uh, so, so how's Joab doing, you know? Man, I love that guy. I hope he's not stressing, you know, because he has a tendency to stress out. He is such a good guy, isn't he? I mean, how's things going out there for you guys? You winning the battle? How's things, you know, how's everything? You know, and I, you can imagine, what, what is Uriah thinking? Like, you called me out here 
You just want to ask me how the battle's going? That's it? You just want to ask me how Joab's doing because you're just checking on him? You wanted me to come all the way here, leave my men fighting on their own without me, and just come out here so you can ask me how things are going? That's it? Right? I mean, what does Uriah say to that? Well, well, David, uh, you know, Joab is kind of stressed out because guess what? People are trying to kill us every day, right? So that's kind of understandable that he's a little stressed, you know. Uh, you know, David, you were supposed to be there with us too, but you're not. Uh, and, you know, people are dying because it's a battle, like an actual battle, David, that you're supposed to be at. But, you know, speaking of which, uh, if there's nothing else that you need to talk to me about, I'd like to get back there because those guys are waiting on me. So, uh, you know, can I go? And check out what happens in verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, you know, go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. It says, you know, look, Uriah, yeah, that, that's it. You know, you can go back to the front lines and everything. But, you know, while you're here in town, you might as well stay the night. You're here. You're on leave. Go home. Say hi to the little woman. You know what? I'll even send you guys a fruit basket. You know, go light the fire. Put out the rug. Everything's going to be really nice. I'm sure you kind of miss her. You know, I mean, you've been sleeping with all those guys out there for months, you know, in tents. That can't be great. So, you know, tomorrow get on your way. And tonight, though, you're on leave. Go home. Enjoy yourself. Spend some time. I'll, I'll send you guys this fruit basket, you know. Now, I'm sure at some point Uriah must have been a little bit suspicious. I mean, of all people in Israel... Why does David need to see him? And if David just wants to know how Joab's doing and how things are going in the battle, well, that's what messengers are for. Uriah doesn't need him to come in person to talk about that stuff. But of course, David's plan is that Uriah will go home, spend the night with Bathsheba. When the baby comes, there's no questions. Problem solved. No one ever knows. The secret remains a secret. See what happens in verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord. And did not go down to his house. Nope. That's not how it's supposed to work, right? The plan's not working. Verse 10. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. That's tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my wife to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. You know, Uriah is a man of honor and integrity. And his integrity says, my men are out on the field of battle. I'm not taking a break till they take a break. I'm not on leave until they're on leave. You know, Uriah shows far more integrity and honor than David does. And honestly, David is hoping that Uriah would be a little bit more like, well, him right? Willing to compromise, willing to indulge his passions. But we see that Uriah was a man of integrity. So what is David going to do now? I mean, there, there's, uh, this is another opportunity that David's faced with, that same choice. Okay, David, your plan didn't work. Maybe God's trying to tell you something. Maybe God's not letting you get away with this, David. This is an opportunity for you to confess and repent. But David says, you know, if plan A doesn't work, and I'm just going to ratchet it up a little bit with plan B. Check out verse 12. It says, Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. You know, you kind of get this sense that Uriah is just kind of itching to get on his way. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. 
Plan B, David invites Uriah over for dinner. Now you can't really say no to the hospitality of the king, so Uriah has to go over there. And during dinner, you know, David's trying to get him smashed, right? He's like, you know, you can just imagine David telling his servants, you know, hey, some more wine for Uriah. You know, drink up, Uriah. This is the best wine around. We're having a party. David's hoping, of course, that if Uriah gets drunk, he'll just, uh, you know, uh, forget about that integrity stuff, and he'll go spend the night with Bathsheba. Problem solved. Verse 13, the, the second half, we read this. But in the evening he went out, that's Uriah, to lie on his couch with the servants of, the Lord, of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. This is just not working out, is it? Plan B didn't work either. You know, some commentators believe, and, and we can't know this for sure, but some commentators believe that Uriah suspected that something was up, right? And that's why he refused to go to his house. And many times that is the case, that when, when there's an, an adulterous affair taking place, the, the spouse who is being sinned against, let's say, that spouse suspects infidelity in their spouse even though they don't have any hard evidence, even though they don't have a smoking gun. There's a suspicion. And it could be that Uriah didn't go home because he suspected that something was up, even though he didn't have any hard proof. So what's David going to do now? I mean, plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't work. What's David going to do? I mean, it seems that God just will not let him get away with this. And once again, David's faced with this choice, this opportunity to confess his sin. David, it's not working out, man. Your plan's not working. You need to confess. You need to repent. You need to just own what you did. Accept the fallout and the consequences of your actions. Get right with God. Or, of course, there's the other option, which is you continue to hide your sin. The only thing is kind of running out of options at this point. So what does the sweet psalmist of Israel do? Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. There's no ambiguity in this at all, is there? I mean, this is, this is very clearly a death sentence. And this is murder. David's, of course, going to try to make it happen on the field of battle to cover it up. He's going to make it happen at the hand of another man so that he can say, you know, I didn't kill him. But honestly, this is murder because it's completely intentional. He's setting him up to die. Now imagine if you're Joab, right? And here comes Uriah, and he hands you this letter. And you open up the letter, and it says to kill Uriah, the guy who just gave you the letter, right? And, and here's David. Who gave you this letter? David, this man that everybody looks up to as this spiritual guy. And yet he gives you this letter telling you to do something that's not only completely unethical. I mean, it's completely wrong in every possible way. Now imagine Joab receiving that letter and just thinking, you know, I have heard David praise the Lord with the best of them. I've seen him dance before the Lord with all his heart, but when he's got some dirty work to do, he comes to me. So why did Joab go through with it? Was it just because it was an order and you just follow orders? I think there is more than that. I think if you look at Joab's character throughout the book of 2 Samuel, what you find is that he's a very cunning man. And, you know, by doing this, what does this give him? This gives him leverage, doesn't it? It gives him something that he can hold over David's head. It gives him some dirt on David, and that dirt, guess what? It gives him power in that relationship. Those secrets that only they know gives him power in the relationship. 
So think about Uriah here. David knows that Uriah is such a man of integrity. Can you believe this? He knows that Uriah, he's such a man of integrity, such a trustworthy man that I can trust that if I send this letter with him, he's not going to open it until he gets there, right? He's not going to read it. Can you believe that? David has gotten himself in so deep now that the only way to cover up his sin is to kill Uriah. That way, of course, he can claim that you know, Uriah and Bathsheba were together at some point during Uriah's trip to Jerusalem, and no one would be the wiser because dead men tell no tales. And you can't help but look at this, right? And say, wow, adultery and murder? How does somebody even get to this point where they're willing to commit adultery, not even to mention where they're willing to commit murder? And maybe you say in your heart, I would never do that. Well, think about this. If Satan had shown up to David, even a year, even a couple months uh, before this, and said, hey, David, I've got a proposal for you. How about you go commit adultery with your friend's wife, and then you murder him so that you can cover it all up? A good man, David, just, it doesn't matter. He's a man you trust. He's a man who trusts you. But, you know, you sleep with his wife, and then you murder him. What do you say, David? Uh, David would have been offended. How could you even think that about me? Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous. He would have looked Satan straight in the eye and said, what kind of man do you think I am? And you know what Satan would have replied? He said, you are the exact kind of man that I have trapped time and time again. Because I'm not just going to dump it on you all at once, David. I'm not just going to give you the whole package all at once. I'm going to lead you into it one step at a time. Do you remember the steps? I mean, it's a web that's woven one strand at a time. Do you remember how it began? There was a disregard for God's plan for marriage. Remember that? David just started marrying everybody. And, and there was a lack of restraint. There was a lack of, of uh, restraint in regard to expressing his, indulging his passions. And then there was, you know, putting himself in a vulnerable situation. Another strand. And then there was, you know, I'll just entertain the temptation. And then there was lust, and there was adultery, and there was covering it up. You see what I'm saying? This was a web. They were just, it wasn't just thrown at him all at once. It was built one strand at a time, one step at a time. It was a long, slow progression. And all along the way, there were opportunities for David to get off this train, to change directions. You know, it's easy for us to look at this and say, I would never do that. I mean, maybe him... But I, I, you know, honestly, I'm just better than that. I'm not that kind of person. But I want you to think about this. Who is it that we're talking about here? This is the sweet psalmist of Israel. This is the man after God's own heart. Let me ask this. Who in here would say that they are more spiritual than David? Who in here would say that you have a greater heart for the Lord than David had? But yet he fell. And if he could fall, that means that you could fall. It means that I could fall. You know, why is this story in the Bible? I asked that question in the beginning. Well, let me tell you this. One reason is to tell us, it's God's way of telling us, don't you dare think for a second that this couldn't happen to you. It could. So what do you do? Each of us, we need to be down on our knees saying, Lord, I need you every hour of every day. Because but for the grace of God, there go I. It could happen to David, then it could happen to me. So Lord, search my heart. Show me if, if that web is being built in any way in my life, if there's any area of compromise, lest I start down that long, slow path of hiding my sin rather than confessing my sin. Verse 16. And Joab was besieging the city, and he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. What kind of men? 
valiant men, right? And the men of the city came and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. I want you to see this. Not only did Uriah die, but several other men, not just men, but valiant men who were there fighting for their nation with a heart for God. They were collateral damage. Now, isn't it sad to see that this is the fallout of David's selfish, cowardly actions? Other innocent people have to suffer as a result. That's how it always goes with sin. The blood of these people is totally on David's hands. Verse 18, Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, if the king's anger arises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Why did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed um, Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper, mill, uh, upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. You see, he's expecting that David's going to have some kind of protest here. Verse 22, so the messenger came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger came to David. The men gained advantage over us and came out against us in the field and we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall and some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. You know, strengthen the attack against the city and overthrow it. Just uh, encourage him. David hears this news and his response is just so like, Hey, you know, stuff happens. You know, you, lo- you win you- some, you lose some, right? I mean, hey, that's the cost of war. The thing is this, this is not the cost of war, David. These kind of things don't happen. Valiant men don't get murdered by their king. David, you, you sent these men to their death. This is on you, David. Now, you know, when Uriah, when David heard that Uriah was dead, he breathed a sigh of relief. You know why? Because he said, now my sin is covered. I got away with it. Maybe, and I know this is a perverse thought, but I, I think our minds can go to this place. Maybe he even thought, God is now blessing my plan. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, this is a period of seven days, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You know, probably Bathsheba wasn't party to David's plan to kill Uriah. I mean... Probably she did love her husband. And after all, though, you know, this was just another skeleton in David's closet. This is a secret that he wants to keep in as tight of a circle as he can. Just him and Joab, nobody else has to know. But I, I do think this, that when Bathsheba heard that her husband Uriah was dead, even if she didn't know that David was, had any part in it, there was probably some sense in which she was relieved. This was an answer to the problem. You know, now she's not going to be punished as an adulteress. Now she even gets to be a queen. She gets to be the wife of a king. And everything is covered up. They got away with it. And now David, this is even better. Think about this. Not only did David cover up his sin, but he comes out of this looking like a hero. You know why? Because people would say, well, look how compassionate the king of Israel is. That, you know, here's this poor widow her husband was a hero, a military, you know, hero. And he died valiantly in battle. And look, 
she's pregnant with, with her husband's baby, of course. I mean, who else? And the king of Israel just has so much compassion on this widow, this pregnant single mother, that he's taking her into his house, and he's going to take care of her and her baby. What a good man that king of Israel is. What He certainly is a man after God's own heart. Can't you see people saying that? They got away with it, didn't they? Completely, scotch-free. No one will ever know about this affair. You know, I just imagine, you know, panning out and, there they are in the, the, the king's house one night, and they're sitting there in front of the fire looking at each other and thinking, wow, we got away with it. But did you catch the last line, the last sentence in that chapter? The thing that David did displeased the Lord. Now let me ask you this. Did you realize that that's the first time that God is mentioned in the whole chapter? It's the first time he's mentioned in the whole chapter. Oh, he was there the whole time. But of course, you know, they, they weren't thinking about it until we get to this point. It says they did all this stuff, and you know what? They, what they did greatly displeased the Lord. David and Bathsheba, they thought they got away with this. But you know what? They didn't get away with anything. The whole concept of hiding your sin, do you realize how, what a joke that is? It's a joke. You can hide your sin maybe from other people. And maybe you can even get your conscience to the place where it's so numb that it stops yelling at you and bothering you all the time. You can never hide your sin from God. You know, Adam and Eve, there's the original cover-up, right? After they sinned in the garden, they tried to hide from God. And they were filled with this sense of shame. And they tried to cover it up. And they tried to hide. Whereas before, they had walked with God and talked with God. Now they were hiding from Him. And it's almost comical that they would even think that. But it's too sad to even be funny. And we read in Genesis 3, it says that God came looking for them. And He says, where are you? Where are you? You know what's hard about reading black and white words on pages is that you don't hear the emotion in them, right? You can read that several different ways. You can read it, where are you? Or you can read it the way I read it, which is, where are you? Right? Well, when I read that, and I want you to see this, these are not the words of an angry God. These are the words of a broken-hearted father because rather than coming to him, they're hiding from him. Rather than coming and confessing what they're, they're hiding, they're trying to cover it up. David had successfully hidden his sin. He thought, he secured his little secret so no one would ever know. But God knew. And here's the deal, that hidden sin in your life, you know what it does? It hinders your fellowship with God and it is a barrier to spiritual life and power. Outwardly, David was looking great, right? Everything worked out exactly how he wanted. His secret was a secret. Yeah, there was a, a price to pay, but it was worth it because he kept the secret a secret. But you know what? Everything might have looked great on the outside, but inwardly, he was a wreck. You know how I know that? Turn with me to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. You know what's interesting about the life of David? In the Bible, it's very unique in that we have not only the historical narrative here in First and Second Samuel and in Chronicles, but we also have the Psalms, which David wrote. And they give us insight in David's own words to where he was at emotionally and where he was at spiritually during these times. And in Psalm 32, David writes about this period in his life that we're talking about here, where he was hiding his sin. And he describes what was going on inside of him. And he says there, he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. 
My strength was dried up like the heat, uh, as by the heat of summer. In other words, he was a mess. He was a wreck. He was not happy. He was under a time of intense conviction. He was experiencing the stress and the agony of living a double life. There was a dryness in his soul. He was just a shell of a man. All the joy evaporated from his life. All along the way, though, David was faced with this choice in regard to his actions and his sin. Confess and come clean or cover it up and hide it. And over and over again, David chose to cover it up. But this is where it's gotten him. Miserable, tortured inside. There's a barrier in his relationship with God and all the joy and strength has been sapped from his life. In other words, getting away with it was the worst thing that ever happened to David. Here's what God's word says. It says this, Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing. Now compare that with how David was feeling, right? How? How do you get those times of refreshing? Repent and return. You see, futile attempts to, to cover things up, to hide your sin. Do you know what it leads to? It leads to death. But the way of life, the way of joy, the way of refreshment in your soul is to confess your sin and repent. God knows it anyway. You know, to repent, it doesn't just mean to feel bad, like feel really bad. No, it means to change course, to change direction. It means you're going in one direction and you forsake that way and you go in another direction. Because when you do that, when you bring the deeds of darkness out into the light and you, you get to experience the forgiveness and redemption and restoration, and joy will return to your life. You know, Jesus Christ died for those things. All the shameful secrets that people hold on to, he died for them. Both the things that were done to you and the things that you have done. Jesus took all that junk upon himself on the cross. You know why? So that you don't have to bear that. So that you don't have to carry that. So you can let them go. So you can just lay them out there and you can have a new life. That's the promise of the gospel. That's the hope of Jesus Christ. That the only way to have that new life is to stop trying to hide. Stop trying to cover it up and bring that stuff out into the light of day and lay it at the foot of the cross. Confess it, forsake it, and thank the Lord that Jesus paid for it all. Whatever consequences your actions might have, I'll tell you this, they're only going to get worse. They're only going to get more complicated and they will cause even more emotional and spiritual havoc in your life the longer you wait. And the call of the gospel, think about this, the call of the gospel is the call to live one life. You know, like that soap opera, right? One life to live. That's what God wants for you. Not the soap opera. He just wants one life for you to live. And you know what that means? When you're living one life, that is what integrity is. Integrity, oneness, wholeness, which means no secrets, no shame, no double life, no secrets, but one life with a heart fully given over to God. And I told you this story is in the Bible for two reasons, remember? Number one is to be a stern warning to us. But the other reason is this, to give us hope. You know why? Because as bad and as terrible as the things which David did were, and as scared as he was of them coming to light and the truth being found out, when he did confess and repent, God forgave him. And God restored him. That's what the rest of Psalm 32 is about. He talks about how God made him glad. He says, oh, how happy is the man whose sins are forgiven. And if God can do that in his life, in spite of all of this, then surely God can do that for you. Amen? Amen. That is an incredible hope.
The message of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ, because of his death on the cross, all of your sins can become not only covered up, they can be washed away for good. You can be cleansed, you can be made new, and you know what else? Jesus not only died for your sins, but he resurrected to new life. And what that means for you is that in him, you can have a whole new life. Amen? Is that good news? I think it is. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for this good news of the gospel. We thank you that in spite of a story this dark, Lord, that we see the light of the gospel shining forth even in a greater way. Lord, we thank you for that gospel. And as we sing this last song, Lord, we just want to respond to it. We want to respond from the fullness of our hearts and say, Lord, thank you for that hope. And Lord, if it could happen to David, well, then it could happen to us. But for the grace of God, there we go too. But Lord, by your grace, keep us. We need you every hour. Lord, we need you right now. And we come to you, and I pray for anybody in here who, who might be holding on to some secret. Lord, may they lay it down today and let it go and receive the forgiveness and the redemption of the gospel. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.